Amen. Please take a seat. I'm going to, to read now the passage that we'll spend the rest of our time together thinking about, and that's Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 18 through to the end of verse 25. It's just the end of, of chapter 2. So let me uh, read for us from Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. Well, before we spend just a few minutes thinking on that passage, we're going to ask for God's help. Let me lead us in prayer. Our God and Father, we praise you for revealing yourself to us in the world which you have made. We praise you for revealing yourself to us in the word which you have given us, which is living and active. And we praise you for revealing yourself to us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Please help us as we study your word tonight and think on your created world tonight each grow to be more and more like your son tonight. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, there are um, certain people in the world, aren't there, who are able to do extraordinary things on their own. Consider a man called Ra Paulette, for example. Paulette digs cathedrals out of mountains. And there's not one part of that sentence that isn't impressive. Um, Over the last 25 years, he's carved immense and intricately decorated caves into the sandstone of New Mexico. And he's done that completely alone. He does everything manually using a pickaxe and a shovel and a wheelbarrow. He's completed 14 of those structures, apparently, one of which could be yours for the princely sum of a million dollars, if you should be so minded. People can do amazing things all by themselves, can't they? No matter how able you are, though, there are some tasks that we really can't do on our own. It is a very rare thing, for example, that someone builds a house without anyone else to help them, isn't it? People do, but not all that often. Rarer still that someone carries out a complex medical procedure on themselves. Or even rare that someone would raise a child 
without any help at all from, from whether other family or perhaps other care professionals or for other, from, from other teachers even. Some tasks are generally beyond us as individual human beings, aren't they? And in that principle, people's limitations, our, our inadequacies on our own, is the key idea that drives our passage in Genesis chapter 2 this evening. Genesis 2 is all about a task that can't be done alone. We have seen, if you've been here over the past few weeks, that Genesis 1 and 2 are foundational in what they tell us about who God is, about who we are as his creatures, and about our role in his world. And two weeks ago, it seemed as though things couldn't really get much better Eden really was Eden. It was a picture-perfect paradise. And from the dust on the ground of that wonderful garden, God made the first man. But before that man was even given the name Adam, he was given a job to do. Just read with me. Chapter 2, verse 15, if you have a Bible open in front of you. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and to keep it. The man was given a task. He was charged with working the Garden of Eden. And so he was, living in paradise and doing so with purpose. And yet, things weren't quite done yet. Because you see, in tonight's passage, in Genesis 2, we see that there was a problem in paradise. That the man wasn't quite up to the job on his own. And that that inadequacy has all sorts of implications for us today. And we're going to to just delve straight into that. We'll do that under our first heading this evening. A problem in paradise, searching for a fitting helper, verses 18 to 20. Now, I'm about to say two words that I suspect will evoke different reactions from each of us here, depending on what each of us were like as school pupils. Those two words are report card. When you remember back to your school days, report card season might have been a happy time of year in general, when you got the the, the pat on the back that you've been hoping for. For others, that pat on the back might have been more of a a clip around the ear, I guess. I want you just to imagine for a moment receiving a report card, where the grading system goes from very good on one end of the spectrum to not good on the other. And as you scan through the first few items in the report, the first clutch of comments in the comment boxes, each say, good. It's all looking quite promising so far. And there is then, at the end of that list, a very good. At which point, you're starting to think this might be a bit of a blinder of a report card, until you flip over the page where things fall off a cliff. And that good, that very good, in fact, is followed by and not good. You would immediately set up and pay attention to the not good, wouldn't you? No matter how many goods you'd had, you would want to know what the not good was for. And that report card is is, is pretty much the same sort of shape or pattern of Genesis 1 and 2. Again, you might remember if you've been here on, on Sunday evenings recently, that the author of Genesis 1 established a fairly steady pattern. Each day, God created something, and his creation, said the author, was good. In fact, God said was good. Then two weeks ago, God made humankind, which he said, chapter 1, verse 31, was very good. 
Things are looking distinctly positive in the world's report cards at this point. Until we move into chapter 2 and our passage for this evening. Because in chapter 2, that positivity comes to a bit of a halt. Read with me again. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. There is a problem. And immediately, I think we're meant to do what we would do if we spotted that bad grade in a school report card. We're meant to want to know what that problem is. And so we read on, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. The problem is that the man is alone. And if you've ever heard a talk on Genesis 2 before, you might have heard it suggested that that word alone could just as easily be translated as lonely. That the man, well, the idea, I guess, is given that the man had tried striking up a conversation with a panda or a walrus, but they just didn't click. They didn't have that relational warmth together. And so God created the woman to be the great answer to his loneliness. But I want to put it to you this evening that, that loneliness isn't the problem in Genesis 2. Because here's a suggestion of how things might sound in Genesis 2 if loneliness was the problem. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a partner fit for him. Or it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a soulmate fit for him. You see, if loneliness was the problem, the solution to that problem would be someone to keep Adam company. But that isn't what God is concerned to make for Adam, is it? What does it say instead? Verse 18, the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Can you see the reason it's bad that Adam is on his own isn't that he's lonely. It's that he can't do what he needs to do by himself. He's inadequate for that task and needs a helper. Just remember what the task is that he's been set. Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And actually, we've already gone a bit further than that in in Genesis. We read a couple of weeks ago, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, God had said to the man in Genesis 1, 28. Have dominion over the fish of the seas, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam's been given a job to do by God to fill the earth to rule over it, to keep and to tend the garden. And he can't do that all by himself. He needs a helper. Now, just for clarity, that word helper, it isn't a pejorative word when it's first used in Genesis 2. That's how we might tend to use the word helper in English to convey a sort of inferiority or a lowliness. That isn't the sense in Genesis 2. And I know that it isn't, and I'm not just saying that, because the word that's translated here as helper is most commonly used in the Bible to describe God himself. God himself is a helper to Israel in their time of need. I think 15 of of 20-something uses of that word are of God himself in the Bible. So this isn't an inferiority thing at all. It's a supporting someone who needs supporting thing. Now, just to let the cat out of the bag... Marriage is going to be part of the answer to this problem, to the the not goodness of verse 18. And we'll think about why that is in more detail in a few minutes. But before we get there, we do well to to, to reflect on, on what this very simple idea tells us about the purpose of marriage in general. 
Because if the problem in Eden was loneliness, well then spouses exist to solve that problem. To be good company to each other. But if instead the problem is an inability to do the job as given him to do on his own, well that means that at least part of the purpose of marriage is to work to bless the world as God's representative rulers and to do that together. And I wonder if that might well be a helpful corrective, perhaps even a bit of a challenge for some of us, to those of us who are married, to reflect on how our marriages honor God by blessing the people around us, or perhaps tend to be far more insular than that, to be all about me, all about us. And to those of us who, who aren't married but would like to be, I wonder if this is a prompt to consider whether the reason we want to be married is at least in part in order to bless other people as God intends, or again, whether it's all about me and meeting my needs. That is our, our first point this evening. There was a problem in paradise. The man needed a helper to do the job he'd been given to do. And if, if the first idea is about the problem, is about man's inadequacy, Well, our second point is all about the solution God provides to that problem. Let's think about that under our second heading. The problem solved. Woman is the perfectly fitting helper, verses 20 to 23. Just read again with me from the very end of verse 20. There was not found a helper fit for the man, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now, I wonder if you can see something of the flow of thought in those verses. The man was inadequate for the job on his own, and there were no other fitting helpers to enable him to do that role. So, God created the woman. And the inference there is that she is a fitting helper. She is tailor-made for that role. And it, several things are highlighted about the woman that make her so fitting. First of which is that she is equal to the man. Just notice that as God makes the woman, he makes her from the same stuff from which the man is made. Quite literally, in fact, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. They are equal in so far as they are made of exactly the same material. But the equality isn't just a physical commonness thing in Genesis 1 and 2. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago in chapter 1. Again, if you do have a Bible open in front of you, just turn back over to chapter 1, verse 27. We read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female created in the image of God. Now, we've already seen in this series, haven't we, that God's view of humanity is extraordinarily high. And we see this evening, well, crystal clear, that God's view of humanity is equally high. Men and women made in his image. Now, in the ancient Middle East, when this account was perhaps first being read, that idea was pretty radical. Women were often understood to be second-class citizens, often even treated as property. And into that kind of context, Genesis 2 is, is dynamite. 
It's saying, no, 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 that's, that's not how things are at all. Men and women made in God's image. Genesis 2, in that sense, is deeply subversive, at least in the culture in which it was first written. And we may well need to affirm that idea in our culture too. Genesis 2 completely undermines any view which values one sex more highly than the other, whether from men to women or from women to men. Both are created in the image of God, made of the same stuff, serving the same objective together. And yet, the fact that the man and the woman are of the same value and the same worth doesn't mean that they are the same. And we know that because, you see, if, a, if, if man's inadequacy for the task was a simple lack of numbers thing, if it was just too much work for him to do by himself, well, the answer to that problem would just be to create another man, wouldn't it? But that isn't what God does. He creates something, or rather someone, different. Verse 23, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Man and woman named differently from one another. Equal, we've already established that, but also discernibly different. And not different in the sense that they're at different stages on a spectrum. Notice there are two clear categories given to them, male and female. And it is just worth highlighting that, I think. Because you see, in our culture, a number of categories are used to try and make sense of people's experience as human beings. The category, for example, of gender is often used to try and make sense of the fact that some people feel a disconnect between the biological reality of their body and their subjective sense of who they are. And it is true that some people have difficulty in identifying with their bodily sex, but that doesn't mean that sex itself is either fluid or is assigned or that gender is a subjective thing that, that, that we can change, or a cultural construct for that matter. No, in the Bible, sex is a bodily reality, and gender is treated as being innately connected to that reality, not distinct from it. Now, I'm aware that that might well be difficult for some of us to hear this evening, perhaps because that's something you've struggled with yourself, or, or you know someone else who struggles with that, and if that is you, let me say two things. Firstly, God loves you very, very much and values you very, very highly. You or your friend or family member were created in his image, imbued with inherent value and worth. And let me say secondly that you are most welcome here. And I really do mean that. And at the same time, all I'm having us do this evening is trying to listen to what the one who made us says about how we were made. We are made equal in God's image. And at the same time, we are made different, male and female. And though some people do struggle with that, whether personally or, or even perhaps intellectually, we don't get to decide gender. God does. So, so far we are made equal. We are made different. And thirdly, we are also made complementarily. Notice I had to slow down to say that. That's quite a tricky word to say. What do I mean by complementarily? I can barely say it. What do I mean by it? Well, the answer to the problem of man's inadequacy in Genesis 2 isn't just that the woman is equal to the man. 
Because again, so would another man be if God decided to create another man. Nor is it just that the woman is different from the man. Because so are hippos and sausage dogs and butterflies. And you see, the answer to the problem in Genesis 2 is that the woman and the man are like one another, but different from one another. Or in other words, they are complementary to one another. They fit each other correspondingly. That's the language the author uses, isn't it? Verse 20, there was not a helper fit for Adam. And and those words fit for carry the idea of, of, of corresponding to or of like opposite from, like two pieces of a puzzle that together make the whole. And that isn't just a physical thing, that their bodies correspond to one another's. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also a functional thing. Because remember, the whole problem in Genesis 2 was that Adam couldn't do the job alone. He needed help. Not from another man who could do the same things in the same way as he could. Not from another creature who was completely different from who he was. No, he, he, he needed help, said God, from someone who could perform a different but a complementary role to the one he could do. Man and woman working together to do the task God had given them to do. And I just think it's worth flagging that at least part of how that cashes out in Genesis 2 is that the man takes the initiative in fulfilling the task they've been given. Notice, God gave the man the role of naming the creatures God had made. Verse 19, God brought the creatures to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Part of the job, the task of ruling the earth, was the job of naming things. And so as we read on, verse 23 is another part of the man fulfilling that task. This is the man speaking, verse 23. He says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. The man naming the woman is him taking initiative in this task. Now, that is a a simple description of how things happened in the garden. But it is also part of a pattern, a pattern that works itself out through the rest of Genesis. We'll see in a week or two's time as things fall apart in Genesis 3, for example, that although Adam and Eve, in one sense, are both complicit in that, it is Adam who's held responsible. And that pattern works itself out through the rest of the Bible too. Complementary partnership, particularly in families and in God's family, the church. Men and women working together with men taking a lead to fulfill the roles that God had given them to do. Now, again, I am well aware that's a controversial thing to say, that in certain contexts, men are meant to take a lead. It might have worked for Paul in the first century church, you might be thinking, or in ancient cultures like the ones into which Genesis was written, but it isn't fit for a modern society like ours. And yet it is interesting that when Paul explains this complementary pattern, both in families and in God's family, the church, he very often does so by referring back to Genesis 2. He sees complementarity not as a cultural pattern, not as an ability thing. It's important we all hear that. This isn't about innate abilities necessarily. It's a creational pattern is how Paul highlights it. And that is why we as a church family are what is sometimes called a complementarian church. 
Again, it's quite a hard word to say, but it is worth saying. We are of the view that that men and women are of equal value, both made in the image of God and both serving him together. And yet that we've been given different and complementary roles in that service. What does that look like here? Well, we serve alongside one another as men and women. But our practice here at Hebron is to have male elders who take a lead in Bible teaching. That's part of how Paul says this pattern cashes out in a local church. Now, again, I'm aware as I mention any of that, that people here might have, have experiences of that pattern being misused, of, of, of domineering or of chauvinistic leadership. And let me just say that that is an abuse of what God designed us for. And I know it's an abuse of what God designed us for because dominating leadership is the opposite of how complementarity is meant to look in the New Testament. When it's explained to us in the Bible, church leaders and husbands are called to lead through suffering service, both of of the local church or of the wife whom they lead. It's meant to be costly and sacrificial personally. Now, I'm aware that I've really just scratched the surface of what is a big idea and introducing ideas, I guess, for, for, for some of us. If you want to speak about that more, please do grab me after this evening's service. Grab any of the elders for that matter. We'd very gladly sit and chat through any of that with you and, and why that cashes out the way it does here at Hebron. But that is our, our second point this evening. The problem solved, woman, is the perfectly fitting helper, verses 20 to 23. Now, I wonder if you've ever heard of the fourth wall before. It's an imaginary wall, and it exists between performers and the audience of of a movie or a TV show or a play. And, And what it means is that whilst the audience can sort of see through this wall and can watch what the actors are doing... The actors, as part of this this whole performance, aren't meant to be able to see the audience. And yet occasionally, as part of a performance, that fourth wall is deliberately broken. And so a performer acknowledges the presence of the audience, might make an aside to the camera and address the audience directly. And, And that can be quite an annoying thing when it's done badly. But it can also be quite an effective way of making a point or of highlighting why something really matters. And in our final couple of verses this evening, the writer effectively breaks the fourth wall. I wonder if you notice that. He seems to step outside of that immediate creation narrative, and he makes a comment that explains the significance of all that we've just been told. And that significance is what we're going to think about under our final heading this evening. Complementary marriage is therefore good, permanent and save verses 24 and 25. Now just follow the flow of thought from verse 23 into verse 24. In verse 23, we are right in the flow of the narrative. God has made the woman. The man has seen her and has sung his great love poem to her. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At which point we might expect to read verse 25 to draw that narrative to a close. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That would be a natural conclusion to the flow of the narrative in Genesis 2. But you see, instead of going right there, the author sort of pauses and almost steps outside of that narrative for a moment, breaks the fourth wall, if you like. And he does that in order to explain the significance of what we've just been reading. Just notice that with me. Read in again from verse 23. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
You see, because man's aloneness isn't good, and because woman is able to address man's inadequacy, a pattern of complementary marriage, male and female, is part of God's answer to that problem. Now, it's worth saying just now, not everyone will marry, nor is it necessary to marry in order to serve God. And if you ever doubt that, then just look at Jesus. But nonetheless, God is part of God's answer to the problem in the garden. And a couple of features of this kind of complementary marriage are highlighted for us in Genesis 2. Firstly, notice that it is a permanent union. That permanence is conveyed in a few different ways, actually. It's conveyed firstly by what people are called to leave and called to take hold of. People are called to leave, firstly, their previous family structures. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. That isn't advocating for abandoning your family, not at all. But it is signaling that when you get married, there is a change, a break point from what had been before. And there is also a change in how things are meant to look now. A husband is, verse 24, to hold fast to his wife, to take hold of, to bind himself to his wife. There is a leaving and there is a cleaving. And that change isn't just temporary. People are called to become, verse 24, one flesh. Now that includes physical intimacy. That's why he uses quite a visceral phrase, one flesh. But it is more than just physical intimacy. Because they don't just enjoy one flesh from time to time. Notice what he says, they become one flesh. There's a permanence to that change. And all of that does mean that this kind of committed and complementary marriage relationship, it is intended to be a permanent thing. And I'm aware that for some of us, again, that might well be an uncomfortable idea. As we think in our own relationship situation or history, or of those we know and love, and we see how these kinds of marriage relationships are so often broken. There are, it's worth saying, some grounds in the Bible for that relationship being broken, but those grounds are far more limited than our culture would make them. Why? Well, because this commitment is intended to be a permanent one. And it's intended, too, to be a safe one. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. This permanent complementary relationship is the context in which sexual intimacy was meant to be enjoyed and enjoyed, notice, in complete safety. And again, I'm aware that that idea might leave some of us feeling uncomfortable because in our culture, the only prerequisite for that kind of intimacy is consent. The Bible would affirm that consent is a prerequisite but it isn't enough on its own. This kind of sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed as part of a committed, permanent, complementary marriage relationship between one man and one woman. That is God's good design for us as human beings. But that is a really countercultural idea, as is much of what we thought about together this evening. And uh, I'm well aware that some of you might well be fizzing angry with me just now. And that others might not be angry in as much as you're upset for perhaps multiple different reasons. At least one of which might well be because Genesis 2 has pricked your conscience. Because this picture of, of purposeful, complementary, 
committed marriage relationship as the only safe context for sexual intimacy. While each of us know that we have departed from that blueprint in various ways, whether we're married or not, in our actions, in our thought lives, Genesis 2 does not describe the shape of our thought lives, our intentions as they really are. And that's why it is such good news that the marriage of Genesis 2, it isn't an end to itself. It is also a picture of something much bigger than itself. As we read on into the New Testament, Paul writes a letter to the church in a place called Ephesus, where he spells out that that, that human marriage, as described in Genesis 2, is a picture of another relationship. The relationship between God and his people. And if you know what the relationship between God and his people is like, that ought to come as a bit of a surprise. Because one of the parties to that relationship is serially unfaithful. Again and again, people reject our God, ignore him and his good designs for us, and we go our own way. Not least in the pattern we've read in Genesis chapter 2. And yet, despite the fact that we haven't been faithful to him, still he has pursued us. Still he has loved us. Loved us enough to lay down his life to bring us back to himself. And we'll sing of that in a moment or two, actually, in our final song this evening. From heaven he came and sought her. By her, he means the church, Christians. By heaven he, sorry, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. If you see in Genesis 2 a mirror that shows various ways in which you haven't met God's good design for you and for your life, then in one sense all of us are right to see that because none of us have. But the good news is that by trusting in the death of Jesus in our place, we can know the wonderful intimacy of an eternal relationship that he makes available to anyone, not with an earthly spouse, but with our maker, all because of what Jesus has done for us. If you've never trusted in Jesus yourself before, let me please encourage you to do so today. Let me lead us in prayer as we draw ourselves towards a close. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you this evening as the creator God, the sustainer of all things, including each one of us in this room this evening. We praise you too that you have imbued us as your creatures with value. You've created us equal, different, and complementary to one another, male and female. We ask, Lord, that you would please help us to have confidence in and to rejoice in your good and right purposes for us. And for any of us here who have yet to trust in you, would you please persuade us of the coherence of your plan for humanity? Persuade us of our own rejection of you and need for you. And persuade us of the wonderful good news available to us of the one who came from heaven and sought us to be his holy bride.
and so to trust in you for that rescue. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.